All right, so uh, good evening, everyone. So nice to see you. Uh, I'm the professor of data science with statistics department. Uh, this event is hosted by Social and Economic Data Science Research Unit. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Pablo Rodriguez from Alpha. You'll hear about the Alpha uh, throughout the talk. Uh, prior to starting Alpha, uh, Pablo was a director of uh, Telefonica's uh, research and innovation uh, uh, unit. Uh, he has a truly an uh, impressive professional record. He worked for Silicon Valley companies and some big corporations like Inktomi, Microsoft, and then uh, even Bell Labs uh, back in time. I had a personal, a personal note, I had a privilege to work with Paolo while at Microsoft. Uh, I really admire his uh, uh, big thinking and out-of-box thinking at the same time, uh, having really deep uh, engineering knowledge and intuition. So that's really something uh, you rarely find. Uh, we both graduated from EPFL. That's another thing we have in common, I guess. Uh, in terms of current research interests, uh, Pablo is interested in privacy, uh, personal data, internet networks, and network economics. Uh, he has co-founded this uh, Data Transparency Lab, which is an NGO uh, on data privacy and transparency. Um, he has received several prizes. Maybe he is going to feel a little bit embarrassed now, but I'll say so. Some uh, prestigious prizes from uh, the top uh, uh, computer networking and computer uh, systems conferences. Uh, the one I do remember is the Test of Time Award from Infocom 2017, uh, jointly with Christos Gonsidis. Uh, he's uh, both a fellow of uh, IEEE and ACM, which is uh, quite prestigious. Uh, he has done some very interesting projects, some with some big celebrities, and you'll, you'll, I believe you'll find it in the talk mm. a little bit. Oh. Um, today's talk is, is about how, how to do innovations via moonshots, and without further ado, I'll uh, give the stage to Pablo. So, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, well, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, and, um, and uh, today I'm gonna um, talk to you about uh, the last endeavor that I'm uh, embarking on. This is uh, Alpha. And um, as I look in the audience, I can see uh, probably a mixed audience, some academics and scientists, uh, probably some entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs to be, um, people that work in corporations or that will work in corporations, they work with corporations. And um, I'm almost certain that we all share one thing, or I'll say two things. The first one is the passion to have uh, impact, uh, to, have to, uh, to do things that are meaningful and that can affect the lives of uh, hundreds of millions of people. Um, the second one is probably the frustration in achieving that. And uh, I talk from a personal experience. And, I'm gonna share with you some of that frustration over the years on trying to have that impact in my own journey. Um, I guess my, my own journey starts as a, as a scientist, um, trying to focus on a few problems that matter, um, having a lot of discipline, diligence, picking important problems, and um, it's a pleasure to be a scientist. You get to work in long-term problems. You get to have the freedom to choose the areas that you like. Um, 
you get to work with colleagues that uh, know more than you in many things. Um, but then at the same time, when you try to have impact, there are a number of things that um, probably uh, give you some frustration. The first thing is that impact for a scientist many times is what's called technology transfer. So the best you can hope is that some of your algorithms, um, either you code them yourself or you had some engineer code it for yourself and um, they get embedded into computers that then run in data centers or that power some of the computers of the internet and hopefully uh, somebody will get joy and pleasure out of that. But you're certainly very removed from the end customer and the problem that you're solving. The last one is that sometimes you get frustrated because multidisciplinary work is not easy. How many times you sit in a room with another colleague from another area and you say, you know, maybe a biologist and a computer scientist and uh, uh, a physics would work together and it all makes sense, but then at the end of the day, the way that you measure, the way that um, uh, the conference system works, um, you leave the room and many times few things happen. So I did have my fair share of uh, success being a scientist, um, publishing in top venues. I think Milan has mentioned some of them, working in distributed systems and uh, working in, in networks. But that was not enough. That was not cutting it for me. Um, the next thing that I did was work as an entrepreneur. And when I mean an entrepreneur, I mean working in uh, places where you basically had a, um, a couch and uh, you had a mattress sleeping in the floor in the Bay Area, in the typical garage, early stage startups and uh, mid to late stage startups. And um, there is great because um, you really focus on one problem. You're very close to the end customer. Um, speed is very quick. Um, as opposed to what happens in the scientific process where sometimes impact comes after your lifetime. And uh, with startup, you certainly want to have an impact uh, um, quickly and uh, have speed. But then uh, you also have ownership, which um, it's uh, very important in that process. But then when I remember those years uh, as an entrepreneur, you were always thinking, will I be able to make it till the end of the year? Will they bring more funding? Will I be able to deliver to the promises that I have committed? What if they cut my funding? What if the startup shuts down? So the amount of uh, risk that you can take, even if you have funding, is actually rather limited because you are based on some very frequent metrics to be able to continue funding. And um, talent is typically a problem as well. There is a lot of search uh, competition for talent, for hiring the best. And uh, you basically, you, your friends, and a big project and convincing them to leave the large research labs or large corporations, sometimes it's not that easy. So I did have my fair share of uh, mm, success in, in startups. We sold a couple of them, one to Nokia, another one to Yahoo. So uh, the experience was very good, but it still it was not enough. I still wanted to have uh, impact at scale. So the next thing that I did is I moved into 
corporate research labs. Um, corporate research lab, I even ended up running one of them with um, uh, Telefonica uh, out of Barcelona. And um, in there, certainly, uh, I got to build a multidisciplinary team. I got to bring scientists from different disciplines, I got to bring designers, I got to bring engineers, and have them work together. Money was, funding was not uh, the big issue, you know, the company uh, could afford to uh, have an R&D facility that was uh, going after a wide variety range of uh, projects, and uh, talent was also uh, not that hard to acquire. Uh, we set up a good facility, um, based on a nice place with interesting problems to work on. Um, however, there was also the downside. The downside is that um, to have impact, it required loads of coordination in the company. You had to talk to a lot of people in the organization to be able to make things happen. Um, it was based on a stage gate process where results had to come almost like in a VC world. And um, at best, you could have an incremental uh, uh, impact into adding something to the existing business so you could keep the existing business running, which sometimes is very hard. You know, keeping a good existing business uh, or a mobile phone network, or a fiber optic network, increasing their capacity from 100 megabits per second to 200 megabits per second from rolling 4G to 5G, that is very hard. But the effort, uh, it's, it, it always feels a bit incremental. Uh, uh, you, you need to keep doing whatever is working better and better and better every time. So the frustration was still there in order to have impact, big social impact at large scale. Um, and I have to say that uh, about three, four years ago, uh, I happened to be in the middle of uh, what I call a perfect storm. Um, a perfect storm where um, I saw the opportunity to um, start uh, a venture from scratch that could potentially um, bring the impact that I was dreaming for for so many years. And uh, it was a perfect storm that combined uh, three different people. Um, it was uh, combining uh, the CEO of uh, Telefonica, a visionary CEO that uh, thought that we needed to go for the long run. He actually runs marathons, multiple of them a year, so he understands what going for the long run means. Um, a chief innovation officer, Ian Small, that was coming from the Bay Area, so he understood how to run highly risky projects and uh, uh, make corporations take risk beyond their day-to-day -day, uh, capabilities. And myself, which had had the experience of uh, running innovation uh, for Telefonica, we, uh, some of the, we, we created a number of best practices. Um, I invite you, there is a, a Harvard Business Review article uh, that we call How Elephants Dance out of all that journey that we did with uh, Telefonica R&D. And we all shared the vision that um, it was important for us to increase the level of ambition uh, for innovation and to go after things that could really move the needle and can have a big impact. And, um, and so the rest of the talk, I'm gonna go over some of these issues on how to have this 
impact and what is it that we're doing at Alpha. How to Telefonica decided to reinvent itself. Uh, we decided to go for different types of innovation. How we go about these big projects that we call moonshots that are capable of uh, having big societal impact. What is the definition of these moonshots or big projects for us? Because different people may have different definitions of uh, moonshots. What makes an organization like a moonshot organization unique? How do you go about and find these uh, really audacious uh, projects? And um, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the two, so, uh, some of the projects that we have now, the two that are uh, up and running. Uh, I'm going to briefly describe them. And then I'm going to talk about uh, the type of intelligence, both human as well as artificial intelligence, that is required to make these endeavors uh, succeed. So, First of all, let me uh, introduce uh, Telefonica a little bit. Um, Telefonica is uh, it's a very large uh, telecommunication company. Revenue is uh, roughly 60 billion euros uh, per year. Has uh, more than 100,000 employees. Operates in 17 countries, including in the UK under the O2 brand. Um, a lot of it in Latin America, in Brazil under the Vivo brand and in Spain and other parts of Latin America under the Movistar brand. But it also runs some very innovative uh, ventures, like for instance, GiveGaf, which is an operator run here in the UK, run by the people uh, that innovated in many, many different things around concepted support and operations. Now, even if Telefonica being an innovative company and uh, operating in multiple countries uh, still felt that it needed to reinvent itself. Um, that it needed to go and look after the next big thing because the existing market keeps growing but uh, profits keep decreasing. Um, so we started structure the thinking around um, what to do, how to reinvent uh, Telefonica in terms of this uh, uh, chart where uh, on the x-axis, you have the type of solutions that are being used, whether they're solutions that are existing, that are new to Telefonica, but that may not be new to the world, or that are completely new to the world. And in terms of problems, uh, in terms of markets, um, that are existing markets, new to Telefonica, but they may not be new markets in the whole world, or completely new to the world. Um, most of uh, Telefonica efforts, so we're uh, a lot of the business happens is here, is in existing solutions for existing markets. This is where it is optical fiber deployment, this is where it's mobile telephony, this is where it's uh, video delivery. Uh, about seven years ago, Telefonica started expanding beyond their core and going after areas that were new to Telefonica but maybe not new to the world in markets that could be new to Telefonica. And they started going into the digital market. They started going into solutions like cloud, security, uh, financial services. But something that was not covered is going after uh, markets that could be completely new to the world, that are markets that didn't exist today, and with solutions that are actually new to the world. And that is what we call moonshot territory. That is where Alpha was meant to have and deliver an impact. 
while this was already very well covered by the company, 100,000 people were looking at this, it was very hard to provide a constant set of innovation and evolution of uh, uh, these uh, existing businesses, while we thought that that was a new area that was completely unexplored. And um, if we set the right level of ambition, if we set the right level of team, uh, if we set the right target, we could probably uh, uh, solve big problems that could potentially move the needle. And um, on that category, there are things that may sound crazy. Um, but uh, so did the fact that Amazon, a uh, company that was selling books, started uh, building their own cloud. And now they are the number one cloud provider in the world. Or so it may have been to um, think that uh, Google started going into the self-driving car business and now they are leaders in artificial intelligence by helping cars drive alone and apply to their own business. So you never know what we will find in that moonshot territory, but certainly I'm going to try to uh, bring it to life for you. I'm going to try to bring to life the difference between alpha uh, up there and the difference between Telefonica. And to do that, I'm going to make, I'm going to do a simple game. Uh, you have to be alert, you have to be attent. I'm going to give you a, a, a challenge. And the challenge is very easy. I'm going to uh, flip the next slide, and I'm going to give you three seconds, and I'm going to ask you to count the number of red dots in the slide. Are you ready? Number of red dots in, uh, red dots in the slide, I'm going to count until three. Yes? We go? Okay. One, two, three. How many red dots? 10. 10. 10. 10. 8. 9. Well, there, yeah, I mean, you, you, you got it within 10% error. There, there are 10. You know, it's, uh, uh, the, the Ming is uh, right on target. Now, um, can anybody tell me the number of green dots? They were very big. There are six. You got the, the red dots very well. But, and, and that was a hard task. There were small dots. They were all scattered around. But then you had these really big green dots right there waiting for you. Uh, but like 100,000 employees of Telefonica, I asked you to deliver on one thing. I gave you a task. I gave you a challenge. I put you in a mission, and you deliver. And you deliver well. But nobody was looking at all these other spaces, and that's where Alpha is looking. What if we manage to find those green dots that nobody else is looking at, and uh, potentially could become very good opportunities indeed? Um, in fact, this is what happens when you get different types of innovation. Um, and uh, let me explain to you something that I don't know whether you've uh, heard before, but different types of innovation is like different types of earthquakes. Um, in this chart, I am representing only 
x-axis on a log-log scale. Um, uh, so, meaning as you go on the x-axis, things get bigger and bigger and bigger. And here on the y-axis, things get bigger, exponentially bigger. But on a log-log scale, they will look like a line. But what I'm representing here uh, is the earthquake magnitude on a log scale. So these are really devastating earthquakes, uh, bigger, uh, higher than uh, eight uh, uh, in, in the richest scale. And these are smaller earthquakes. And this is the number of earthquakes in a year uh, of a given magnitude. And um, what you realize is that there is uh, about a million of earthquakes a year of magnitude around 2.5. So basically, loads and loads and loads of them, but you barely sense them. Uh, you barely notice them. They're there, a small friction between the tectonic plaques, and uh, they uh, make some minor changes, but most of them, they go unnoticed. Um, on the other hand, you get, uh, from time to time, very rarely, about one every year, you get an earthquake that is of magnitude bigger than uh, 8.0. And those ones, they typically have catastrophic consequences. They have very disruptive consequences. They change the place uh, where they hit. Well, with the innovation, it's very similar. Uh, if I take the same chart and I plot here uh, innovation that is uh, incremental, so the amount of things that you do on the day-to-day -day life, on day-to-day -day businesses, on day-to-day -day products that are incremental, that is small innovations to keep the business running, to keep things going. And you plot the number of times that you do that, that we do that every day, in, over a year, there is loads and loads and loads of them. It's just that from time to time, we make some innovations that are totally transformational. Um, they're very impactful. They shift whole economies. They create whole new industries. But they are very few. And uh, you don't know where they will happen. You don't know when they will happen. You just know they will happen. And they happen probabilistically. Um, but so it requires persistence of vision. You need to be at the game. You need to be looking for those green dots to be able to have a chance of succeeding. Certainly, if you're not playing in that quadrant, you won't be able to have the chance to uh, go after these very impactful things. Um, but it requires persistence, and it requires the ability to support and take big risk. There is literature, and probably you know this better than me, uh, about um, whether there is a golden ratio for innovation. Um, there is this article, Harvard Business Review, I think it's five, six years ago, um, saying that um, uh, you should spend about 70% in these incremental innovations to keep your core business going. You should spend about 70% of your total uh, innovation budget uh, to try to find adjacent innovations to your core business, uh, like I described before for Telefonica, the 70% would be make sure that we keep having the best mobile phone network, the best fiber optics. Uh, the 20% would be trying to find the next business, whether it is uh, um, the cloud or whether it is uh, um, financial services. And you should spend about 10% of your budget 
in transformational innovation. But look at this. Look at the result of uh, the revenues in the long term. Even though you spend 70% of your budget in the core, that will bring you 10% of the future revenue. While 10% of the money that you spend on transformational innovation, that will bring you 70% of the future revenue. So, you'll say, well, th this all sounds very clear. Why is it that uh, not more companies are doing this? And uh, who used to do this? And who are, is doing these things? So, I'll tell you where moonshots have come from um, in the past. Um, moonshots used to come from um, government, big government efforts. Um, one of the most famous uh, moonshots is uh, landing a man in the moon and uh, being able to uh, leave uh, Earth orbit, go into the orbit of the moon and land. And this was uh, sustained long-term effort um, over decades to uh, uh, be able to do something that nobody had done before. And over all these years, over all these phases, there were a lot of innovations happening uh, to be able to make it happen. The second one, uh, you will know it, is uh, the internet. Big DARPA effort in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, trying to create a network that uh, would withstand uh, a nuclear war, that would self-configure, self-manage, not depending on telecommunication companies, that could start uh, out of a number of academic institutions and research labs and uh, grew uh, bottom-up organically to be the uh, force of uh, wealth and uh, social change that we are seeing now. It took about 20 years uh, for the web to start uh, running on top of uh, the internet and certainly this was a very focused and sustained effort with a big challenge to try to crack an important problem. Um, the next one that comes to my mind is the Human Genome Project. You know, uh, from 1865 all the way to the 1990s, constant efforts, uh, understanding more and more about uh, DNA, and then over the last 20 years, the revolution has been phenomenal. Um, being able to fully decode the DNA and the implication that that has uh, in humanity to be able to solve um, some very important health and disease uh, uh, problems for, uh, for humans. And, uh, what I would say is that that is where it used to happen for many, many years. Uh, it was government funding. But let me show you this chart. This chart is produced by the National Research Council. It's called the Tire Track Index. And it shows how different um, uh, efforts come together from university, which is the red line, to R&D labs, which is the blue line, to uh, corporations and uh, startups, which is the green line, to produce very large disruptions in terms of the creation of the internet, the creation of cloud computing, the creation of robotics, and a large number of companies like Cisco, Microsoft, Nvidia, Apple, and the amount of time that it takes for these things to happen from the first research work, like for instance on the internet, uh, first research work, seminal paper by Bobka and uh, um, at uh, uh, late uh, 60s and Vinton Surf, uh, all the way to the creation, uh, you know, to the jump at the research lab 
uh, say at Xerox Park or AT&T Labs, Bell Labs, to the creation of the first startups with uh, PodMedCalf uh, on Ethernet, to the creation of the web, and then uh, a whole new industry gets spun. Now, what we're seeing is that the engagement and the involvement of large corporations in these processes is accelerating. And at the same time, money and funding from big governments is drying out. So what we're realizing is that moonshot thinking is shifting from government programs into corporations. And um, we're seeing things like this. Um, we're seeing that CEOs of uh, large companies have started to look frantically at research and innovation teams uh, to look for the next big thing. Um, you have examples like Amazon trying to um, crack the problem of uh, last mile delivery using drones. You have Facebook with their connectivity lab um, trying to create gigabit speed wireless networks uh, uh, to connect uh, uh, cities or use uh, big drones or high altitude platforms to be able to um, uh, connect from the stratosphere, low orbit satellites and create high resolution imagery uh, to be able to um, uh, understand what's happening at uh, every point in the world uh, with a resolution of uh, 30 centimeters or bring connectivity to the unconnected. Uh, or what's happening with uh, um, the self-driving effort at uh, Google, Google X, and some of their uh, projects. Um, more efforts are happening at Microsoft, and there is now a handful of organizations that are going after these big, audacious goals. Now, what does it mean for Alpha? Um, Alpha was set up to go after these type of endeavors, go after these type of projects, increase the level of uh, innovation ambition for Telefonica, um, not with the goal of just doing research for, with no concrete output, but go after problems of a certain size uh, and uh, make sure that uh, um, we deliver on high impact. Uh, some of the projects will be closer to our core, some of them are gonna be closer, uh, farther away from the core, but certainly, um, they have to have a number of uh, unique properties. So for us to look into uh, a moonshot, we need to look into solving humanity's big problems with breakthrough technologies. So um, we do two things. We first look at the big global challenges, either defined by United Nations or other institutions, or we do our own research, whether it is energy, environment, health, learning, governance, or security. And then we keep a very good eye at understanding what are the breakthrough technologies that are coming, whether it's artificial intelligence, robotics, augmented reality, biotech, nanotech, or big data. And it's very important for us to succeed that we catch these technologies at the right point in time. We live in a moment of uh, uh, total abundance of opportunities. Um, I think we live in privileged times, the amount of, uh, the rate at which technology is progressing. But you need to catch technology at the right point. If this is the technology capability and you work on it too early, 
this is better suited for universities to keep doing the good research that they do and keep doing these efforts, moving, 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 moving. If you cut the technology too late, then this is something that probably startups are better geared towards using. They are going to take the technology, they're going to implement multiple uh, versions of it, and uh, by uh, natural selection, they're going to be able to crack the problem. But what we want to do is focus on this knee of the curve, right at this sweet point where we're seeing enough progress that if we make a focus effort on a given problem with the right set of people, consistent over time, where five, six, seven years of of a period of time, we're going to push the science, we're going to push the technology to solve it for a particular problem, and hopefully we're going to be able to do something before anybody else is doing it and make a big impact. Now, this is the definition of a moonshot for us. Others have a different type of definition. This is ours. But this is what we call a moonshot, and when we wear the moonshot glasses, this is what we look for. This is our principles and how we have been set up. Um, the first one is that the problem that we look at has to be a very clearly defined problem. It has to be, um, there has to be a clear job to be done, as opposed to this is this big area and this big space that we're going to explore. So we're going to go into the IoT space and we're going to explore it. No, there has to be a very clearly identified uh, big problem that matters. The second thing is that a radical solution that is hard to do is required to be able to solve this problem. Um, meaning you will need to probably advance science and tech engineering by a factor of uh, more than 10x to be able to uh, um, solve this problem. Otherwise, if it is uh, um, a moonshot-like problem, somebody would have already cracked it. Uh, so it probably requires a radical solution to do it. The third one, it has to have big societal impact, um, meaning it has to ha be transformative for society. There are a lot of things that we do that are probably hard to do, that is a very clearly defined problem, but at the end of the day, they may not have such a big societal impact. For instance, rolling 3G to 3.5G. Yes, you get a speed increase in your mobile phone, uplink and downlink, but does that transform society in a big, big way, probably not, keeps people um, uh, enjoying their day-to-day -day life, their day-to-day -day business, but it uh, uh, doesn't have that big society uh, transformation. The fourth one is that as Telefonica, as, um, uh, we, um, we should be able to bring something to the table, to contribute something to solving this problem where others may not be able to do it. Uh, so we have a higher chance at succeeding whether it is our presence in some countries, whether it is um, the, the stability, the financing, the, uh, the go-to-market capabilities, bring something into the picture that is going to help us succeed. And the fifth one is make this uh, moonshot sustainable. So eventually there has to be the ability to capture long-term material value, and we're talking about opportunity sizes of the multi-billion uh, euros to be able to uh, make this uh, sustainable in the long run. Um, and so you would ask, so what is, uh, uh, how, how does a moonshot organization look like? Uh, why is it unique and why is it different to many other things like a startup or an R&D lab or a corpor uh, in a corporation? And um, 
Let me tell you a, bit, a little bit of that now. Mm. If you look at R&D startups or even um, R&D labs or, or, or startup innovation, um, the, the, they look at the, at, the, at, the, at the problem that is articulated either by a customer or by a company insight. So you went and talked to somebody in the engineering department and they told you that they have this problem and then you go and work on it. And if you start up, you uh, either it's a, a problem that you're suffering yourself or some colleagues or you did some research and you try to do that. Uh, for moonshots, uh, the, cash, uh, the, the, the problems are driven by long-term industry trends and that's how you try to identify those problems. In terms of technology, when you solve some, something um, in an R&D lab or in a startup, you know, technology is often sophisticated, but not necessarily disruptive. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a revolutionary change in, in the terms of um, the technology. While for a moonshot, you really need some technology breakthroughs or a combination of multidiscipline or disciplines coming together to do something that hasn't happened before, because otherwise the problem would have already been fixed. The time horizon is different for an R&D lab or a startup. It's usually between two to four years. Moonshots are more five to ten years time frame. Um, you measure progress in a different way. Um, in an R&D lab uh, or a startup, you measure it based on predefined output. So this is, this is what I'm going to do. And then whether you deliver on that or not, that's how you measure progress. In uh, Moonshot, you base the progress based on questions. You focus on the questions and not so much on the answers. And you focus on what are the killer questions that you think is going to kill this moonshot and how fast you answer those killer questions. And in terms of revenue opportunity, uh, if you are not in the lab or a startup, probably you're happy if you're making revenue in the orders of tens of millions, hundreds of millions. In terms of moonshot, if you want to make this sustainable, go and transform, uh, touch the physical world and uh, people, and you want to touch the lives of hundreds of millions of people, you're probably talking billions size opportunity. And uh, setting up a facility like this is, uh, is not trivial. I remember when we tried to set up Alpha, I guess there were about 10 things that Telefonica had never done. And it was not that they were hard to do, it's that they were all exceptions to how things are typically done to be able to run a facility like this. Um, so the first thing is uh, a moonshot organization requires a separate organization with a ring fence space that is not steered by the day-to-day -day business. Otherwise, uh, the day-to-day -day business will just pull it into their day-to-day -day problems and you won't be able to do uh, the job that you are tasked with. Um, the second one is that uh, moonshots, they require long-term radical thinking and therefore they require commitment and stability. As I said before, this is a probabilistic game. Uh, you need to be at the game and uh, hopefully that a few of them will fail, but one of them is going to succeed and is going to make a very big impact. Um, Talent is a challenge. Why? Because you're going after projects that are not in your core, that are not close to what you do in your day-to-day -day life. If you want to do something around networks, make a better wireless network, Telefonica has 100,000 people, I'm sure. You're going to find a lot of talent or one-hop connections to that talent that are going to help you attract that talent. Now, if you're going into self-driving cars or if you're going into satellite imagery, or if you're going into uh, space exploration, 
I certainly can tell you there are not many space engineers floating around uh, telecommunication companies or, uh, or car uh, manufacturer engineers. So finding this type of talent is a challenge because you're basically, you can uh, explore any area, any opportunity, and, uh, uh, but attracting uh, talent for those expertise that you don't have in-house, it requires building communities, it requires building partnerships, it requires working openly um, in a very different way than most R&D labs, which were very closely uh, looking inwards rather than looking outwards. Um, culture is very important. And I'll talk more about it later, but I think allowing for a space of psychological safety so people can take risk, it's crucial. Um, and aligning the incentives for people to be able to think big and go after take big risk. Um, reporting of the organization in terms of management needs to really have um, a, a different governance sort of structure with uh, top management sponsorship from corporate stakeholders. And, um, and I'd say the last one is also very important. The projects have to be very, very focused. Um, focusing on the problem rather than on the technology and doing very few things but doing them well. So I've been in places, in labs, where were hundreds of scientists with 300, 400 projects. Every scientist, three, four projects. How do you do the other way around? Rather than 100 scientists, 300 projects, 100 scientists or engineers or designers, three, four projects. And that is a challenge. It's a cultural change, but it's a big challenge. Um, so how do we find these moonshots? Well, finding these moonshots to me is like finding uh, the next mountain to climb. It's finding a mountain that nobody has uh, found before. Um, and you need to pick these moonshots very well. You need to, because you're gonna invest money, you, you need to recruit a team and you need to make sure that it's gonna succeed uh, or give it the highest chance of succeeding. So uh, we have a team that we call the ideation team that is the one that uh, finds the next moonshot for Alpha. This um, ideation team is chartered with uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, an ideation framework that first looks at exponential technologies and understand how it is evolution of science and technology. The person running that is uh, Philippe Alvelda. He's part of a member of the team. He's the ex-DARPA manager, um, uh, social entrepreneur. He worked at NASA in the led the program for neural engineering and mind enabled office for DARPA. So he's in charge of understanding what sort of technologies are coming and uh, could be potentially useful to create the next moonshot. Um, the next thing is trying to understand the grand challenges and I talked about it before through UN grand challenges or other research that uh, we do. The third one is what we call intelligence gathering. And this is really going and talking to startups, going to scientists, research labs. But it's not about reading papers. It's actually going there and having a conversation and having questions and uh, really embodying uh, what is it, the problem and the state of the art and, uh, and, 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 and do a lot of this intelligence gathering yourself. Um, and to do that, we could have done one of two things. Either create a very big uh, research lab with thousands of scientists, but we decided that Doing that, um, it would probably restrict 
the number of opportunities and the set of opportunities that we were going after to the set of skills of people that we had internally. And instead of that, we decided to go for more of a knowledge hub, uh, being able to uh, uh, cooperate openly with different institutions, universities, research labs, startups, to be able to have the agility to go after any problem whenever we wanted, whatever we wanted. And the last thing is what we call futures. And these four, frame, these four uh, uh, points is what makes the uh, uh, methodology to find the next uh, moonshot. And futures is what we call the process of future casting. Is most people, most organizations, what they do is they do forecasting. So you're here right now, and then you say, okay, if I do an incremental step, I'm going to be here. If I do another incremental step, I go here. If I do another incremental step, I'm going to go there. That's forecasting. What we do is we call it future casting. So basically, we work with science fiction writers. Um, we project ourselves in the future. We understand what sort of trends are going to be happening. And then once you are in the future, you do the reverse thing. You say, what would have happened for us to be able to make it there? And we do the backcasting from that future. And uh, we run a small team. Um, with uh, that is designed for any mission, highly trained with diverse backgrounds and supported for readiness that are ready to go and uh, embark at that understanding any sort of technology problem and try to see whether there is potentially a moonshot there. This team is uh, run by Maurice Conti. He used to be the director of innovation uh, for Autodesk in San Francisco, a maker's space uh, out of the Bay Area. Uh, he has a background in robotics and uh, AI and um, um, worked for several years at Singularity University and his charter with that team to be able to find uh, the next moonshot that we're going to work on. So what are our moonshots today? Um, I'm going to give you a glimpse of uh, two of the moonshot projects that um, uh, uh, are on the works. Um, one of them is in the space of health and the other one is on the area of uh, energy. And um, as I said, a moonshot is like a big mountain that never anybody has uh, climbed before. And, um, and to do that, um, you need to, there is no path. There is no known path to climbing this mountain. You, you know that you, you, you want to go up there, but you, you don't know how. So you need to design for building multiple paths, you need to design for failures in the middle. You need to design for base camps. You need to design for go, uh, deciding to go back. Maybe you find ice in the middle. You need to go back to the, to the previous uh, base camp and take a different strategy. And, um, and all these, hopefully, will increase the probability of success. The first project that we uh, started, and we started one about every year, was Alpha Health. And, um, um, I guess the second most important thing that we do after approving a moonshot is bringing a moonshot captain. It's a person that um, has a lot of responsibility. It has to be domain expert. It should be able to have a lot of entrepreneurship capability and be able to put together a team that hasn't existed before, of people that have never worked together before and that they need to go after a big problem. Um, after first, uh, our first uh, uh, moonshot captain is uh, Oliver Harrison. He's uh, here in the audience. Yep, Oliver is right there. Um, he's here because he's actually working 
with uh, the London uh, uh, School of Economics, with uh, you to on, on a project that uh, um, uh, is very exciting and that we'll probably uh, talk more about it in the upcoming uh, months. His background, he's a psychiatrist by training. I don't think Telefonica ever hire a psychiatrist in the company. Um, uh, neuroscience in, in Cambridge, uh, McKinsey Healthcare, um, Director of Public Health in Abu Dhabi, and work for the World Health Organization. So very atypical profile for an executive role in trying to lead one of these projects. And he's chartered to bring together a very unique team to uh, give a shot at a very fundamental problem. At a fundamental problem that is driven by the rise of chronic diseases. Um, of uh, diseases that are accounting for 70% of global diseases and that eventually turn into cancer, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, or a mental disorder. And that they happen to be dominated, these chronic diseases, by a number of behaviors, day-to-day -day behaviors. Actually, five behaviors dominate this disease burden, uh, such as lack of exercise, uh, poor diet, smoking, excessive alcohol, and poor sleep. And um, we basically think that we are uh, masterminds of our life and our decisions, and a lot of the decisions that we made are made by our autopilot, by our subconscious, and we get ourselves into bad behaviors and bad patterns that eventually turn into very bad consequences for us and our health, and also account for $5 trillion annual global value in terms of uh, uh, the healthcare industry. So, our moon is the global reduction of chronic disease, which is the world's biggest killer. And uh, the way we're going about it is uh, mixing behavioral economics, uh, AI and data scientists with psychologists and engineers to develop a, a, a new set of te technologies that will improve people's health through improving their happiness and helping them change their bad behaviors and hopefully avoid those bad chronic diseases in the future. So that, was, that is our first moonshot. Uh, the second one is around energy. Mm. We want to power the next billion people. The number of people without power is on the rise. And um, you fix energy and uh, the rest of grand challenges are going to be a lot easier. Uh, energy is the biggest of all the global challenges. Uh, you fix energy and then water, food, environment, poverty, disease, education, democracy, population um, are a lot easier to solve. Um, in fact, uh, energy consumption is directly linked to the human development level of a country. There seems to be a magic threshold. This is a United Nations Human Development Index. Um, that shows the development index of different countries, Guinea, Nigeria, Kenya, based on the electricity consumption per capita per year, so kilowatts hour per year. And there seems to be a magical threshold 
above which if you go about this, above this magical threshold of 200 kilowatts hour per household per year, magic things start happening. Uh, countries start um, developing, going into this index, and you get things like the following. You improve local economy by up to 30%, 50 euros per uh, uh, household. You improve uh, healthcare facilities that became, become more capable of treating patients. Education levels are um, improved by an average of at least two years of schooling. Um, and women who in these developed countries, such as India, now spend about 300 hours uh, per year gathering firewood, can put their time to better use. Um, and so our goal is to uh, create a clean and affordable power for the next billion. And uh, the way we're thinking about it is by reinventing distribution of energy. Uh, by creating a distributed energy network apply, uh, uh, using internet principles and uh, being able to bring uh, new energy uh, technologies to these empowered uh, communities. Um, this is part of the team in Peru. About a month ago, interviewing the communities, they stayed there for about six weeks going in canoes, going into the jungle, in the outskirts of the cities, and really understanding the problem uh, to be able to bring, uh, uh, to focus later on on the technology, as opposed to work on the technology and then try to see how is it that you can impact people's lives. So this is all based on human intelligence. This is based on the um, intelligence required to bring a, a, a core set of people uh, around um, a set of values uh, that are critical for us to succeed. And uh, these are the five values that are uh, core for Alpha uh, to make this moonshot happen. Um, the first one is uh, uh, patient in patience. And uh, it means we understand that uh, things will take time to develop, things will take time to unfold, but we're gonna impatiently go after them as quickly as we can, but understand that we need to be patient for them to unravel. The second one is curiosity to the power of we. It's making sure that we create the learning organization where every insight is learned, where we help uh, connect the dots as quickly as we can, because that's the only way that we're gonna be able to uh, stand a chance at this. The third one is Think big, dream big, like uh, startups do and like scientists do. Um, have brutal honesty, uh, the rigor that you have when you are doing science or when you are in the corporate uh, environment and you really need to deliver uh, value for the company, in this case for society. And the last one, work in the space of trust, uh, of trust, of psychological safety, because people are taking a lot of risks, are... Uh, and that's the only way if you develop a space of uh, um, sacred trust between us and, uh, uh, and the day-to-day -day employees. We're hiring. Um, I think that's an important, uh, if uh, you like this type of endeavors, if you're really passionate about having impact, uh, I think there is room for a lot of different disciplines. We have all sorts of people uh, uh, working in the organization, and uh, that is the, the site, alpha.company, in case you're interested. And I've talked about um, human intelligence, but I'm going to 
end the talk talking about um, something else that I think it's also uh, very important and required for um, a company like Alpha to succeed, which is machine intelligence. And uh, machine intelligence that is emerging through the emergence of uh, AI. And AI emerging due to a number of very significant trends. The first one is the cost of communication has been rapidly dropping over the last decades. From thousands of euros of gigabits per second in the late 90s to less than $10 and coming down in the current decade. The next one is the computing costs are going the same direction. From hundreds of dollars per million of transistors in the 90s to few cents uh, in current times. And the cost of storage, exactly the same trend, from hundreds of euros in the uh, early 90s to almost zero uh, currently. The cost of uh, uh, storing terabytes and petabytes now is becoming um, uh, very, very affordable. Now, in a world where all these things are going into zero, where is the value moving? Well, computing abundance means that the value is moving into data and the algorithms. Uh, in a world where communication, computing, and storage is becoming so perishable and so uh, cheap, the value is moving here. And uh, that's what's uh, making AI becoming so relevant. And we now have the capability with the cloud, uh, with the abundance of data that we have, with the AI algorithms that we have, to make tremendous progress in very short periods of time. Uh, you probably follow what happened with Go, uh, computer, learning in a few days, hours, weeks, the, no, the body of knowledge that it has taken thousand years for humanity to be able to gather by having the computer play against itself and learning from the errors and the mistakes and adapting. Um, deep learning, a technology that has been around for a few decades, now um, making very, uh, uh, a lot of impact uh, into um, image recognition by layering and structuring the um, recognition of different layers of objects and being able to identify um, unique uh, representations of uh, animals, of uh, street signs uh, in a very rapid way and automatic way. But I'd say that we are at a very early stage still. If you look at what's happening with machine learning and artificial intelligence, today is mostly driven by the evolution of voice recognition uh, and what's happening with the voice interfaces in your mobile phone and by image recognition. We're now moving into video recognition, but then eventually we're gonna move into higher levels of machine intelligence and eventually into machine consciousness. Uh, so we are at the early stages of the AI revolution. And I believe <coughs> that to make these type of moonshot projects, uh, at Alpha we will need not only human intelligence, but we will need this type of machine level intelligence. And so we set up uh, a particular unit tasked with advancing the state of the art of artificial intelligence by mixing a number of uh, profiles that are gonna uh, build um, a specialized on uh, clouds for AI, mixing 
basic uh, machine learning and AI capabilities, and also bring, bringing neuroscience uh, to understand one of the most advanced forms of intelligence, meaning human uh, intelligence. And so to end the talk, uh, I'm going to give you a few examples of um, pieces of work that we've done over the last years on applying data science and AI, uh, and that I think are critical for uh, this type of moonshot projects to succeed. The first one is applying AI for good, to have a big social impact. Um, I think that uh, there is a remarkable opportunity to bring policymakers together, AI scientists, big corporates, social entrepreneurs, to be able to solve uh, humanity problems. More than a third of the population is affected by disasters. Um, but it's uh, the poorest that are being affected the most. It's 90% of the people who die in these disasters are poor. So what we did is uh, we brought uh, mobile phone data to save lives. Um, we worked with uh, different governments. This is an example um, working with the World Bank, United Nations and uh, MIT uh, in Mexico during the 2009 flu pandemic, commonly referred as the swine flu, um, which uh, it was uh, an outbreak that uh, started uh, in Mexico and went to kill a quarter million people in the planet. And um, what we managed to do um, is by applying data science is um, delay the epidemic peak, uh, postpone it by 40 hours. So we gave more time for the authorities to intervene, to suspend the schools, the uh, airports, and, uh, and uh, therefore reduce the number of infected peak agents by roughly 10%. And this is just one example of the type of uh, fascinating things that you can do with data science and AI today and, and, and this data. The next one is AI for cities and uh, how do you impact a lot of people. Uh, I live in Barcelona, uh, a city very welcomed by tourists, but uh, uh, the tourist industry also creates a lot of problems with locals. Locals that uh, uh, are trying to uh, do their day-to-day, uh, -day, uh, find their uh, usual uh, whereabouts and uh, keep on with their life. And um, what we did is apply some data science, work with the local authorities, work with the municipality to understand what are the tourist patterns in the city. At what times, how do they move, and how is it that they interact with the flows of people uh, living locally into uh, the city to be able to create a more sustained and uh, socially engaged uh, space. Similar thing we did in London for crime, and I think the opportunities there are tremendous, so to find uh, areas in the city that could be safe. Um, the next one is AI for creativity, and um, I think this requires a lot of multidisciplinary. I think using AI and data science to help uh, creators create even further is a whole new area uh, for exploration. And um, this is something that we did with um, an acclaimed chef in um, Spain, Ferran Adria. He set up uh, El Bulli. He developed uh, molecular gastronomy in the uh, mid-early 90s. He went to become the number one restaurant in the world five years in a row, and they shut down on 2001, making it to the front cover of the Financial Times. Um, we worked with them, gathering all sorts of data from all the dishes that they had created over all those years, and uh, worked with um, molecular scientists to understand that ingredients, they can be decomposed 
into um, molecular compounds that depending on how you combine them, depending on the data science they apply to them, you're going to be able to create dishes that taste better or, the, or, or worse. Dishes that create an experience for you or a different experience for you. And so we created uh, um, tools that you can download in this uh, website and go and see uh, the work that happened during that period of time to be able to help chefs create and find the new um, delightful dish for your palate. Um, and um, AI for leadership is also very important. You know, how do you get organizations to um, think strategically about how to set up their teams, how to structure their organizations to compete, to cooperate, um, what uh, uh, sort of a structure they need to have, how do they need to uh, relate to each other, and what better leadership exercise than that one that happens in a soccer field um, with two organizations uh, out of uh, 11 players each trying to compete with each other to score a goal on the opposite uh, 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 team. And um, we work for, with FC Barca, with the uh, technical coach of uh, Guardiola for a number of years, uh, gathering data from the soccer um, field, understanding how data science could be used to design better strategies to play soccer, to recover the ball quicker, to be able to create more opportunities for scoring, to understand what sort of pass structure would help the teams create uh, something beyond the well-flamed, acclaimed tiki-taka by FC Barca, and that probably uh, now Guardiola is uh, uh, helping uh, bring to succeed uh, to success in here in England. And, uh, um, and you can go into this. Uh, uh, website and there is also a wire talk where you can get some more information and some of the tools that were developed there. And I'm going to end the talk um, by saying that um, we are entering a time where more and more of your life is being put in the cloud, is put in data. Um, data that, uh, you know, if used in the right way, it can be very useful, very helpful. It can recommend um, the latest gift for your friend's birthday, your kid's um, Christmas present, your next vacation, but there is a very thin line that if you cross it, um, you start getting into fake news, you start getting trapped into a bubble, you start get feeling this sense of being chased, of uh, not being free to make decisions of algorithms that um, the minute that they start making life or death decisions, you may want to understand how and why they're making those choices. And, um, and consumers are more and more concerned. This is a research that we do every couple of years in different countries, Brazil, Germany, and the UK. And um, while before they didn't they were not aware or they didn't used to care. Now consumers that are spread out a whole range of types, from those that are very concerned and they really aware to those that are mildly concerned, but they would, be, they would like to be more aware. Um, and they worry about what are the consequences of sharing my data. 
what happens with the algorithms, how are they working, what is it that they're doing with my data, how can I track my data, how can I keep and regain more control of this information. Um, the Boston Consulting Group says there is about half a trillion at risk if we don't get this right in this new data science economy. Um, because uh, consumers, they could just uh, start using less of it, start uh, making sure that they prevent a lot of the uh, data sharing, more ad blockage, or simply they could disconnect from uh, parts of the net. We're seeing more and more people saying, you know, I'm not willing to uh, uh, pay this price. Um, there are two efforts that we started. This is, uh, um, one of them is uh, making sure that data is not blocking silos and that consumers can be part of the next data revolution. Uh, so by bringing together data from social networks, banking, finances, and put them in one place in what we call a data bank, we can hopefully give um, consumers more control, accountability, transparency, and more and better services. Or why not help them take that data and donate it to Science When They Die, to UNICEF for those data for good projects. Um, and um, this is something that Telefonica is supporting very strongly. It's called the fourth platform, and it's a project of taking the data that uh, uh, telecommunication companies like Telefonica has, uh, pack it, and give it back to consumers so they get more control of that data and more clarity. And the last one is the launch of the, the, this NGO, is the Data Transparency Lab. We did it with uh, the Open Data Institute here in the UK, uh, Mozilla, and uh, again, MIT. Um, to um, create a space where we could understand a bit more um, uh, how algorithms are using data, how data is being used, give consumers some more information, policy makers as well, and create some tools um, that would open uh, this discussion further. This uh, lab funds uh, a number of uh, research projects every year to produce tools, one of the ones that um, uh, was developed, it was, um, we demonstrated uh, price discrimination um, that has to be, uh, seems to have crept into e-commerce already. And this means that the price that one person sees on one browser or on one type of computer may be different than the one observed uh, at the same time for the same product by a different user, even in the same country. Um, and, um, by giving these sort of tools, giving more information about how these algorithms are working and how this data is being used, hopefully we're going to create a more sustainable and ethical uh, machine intelligence. So, with that I would like to end. Um, and I would like to end uh, by uh, hopefully sh having shared with you some of this uh, journey, personal journey of uh, wanting to have impact of having tried a number of things, and um, now um, uh, at Alpha, uh, a moonshot uh, factory. There are a handful of them in the world. I do believe we're still an experiment. Um, we're, uh, we'll try to get it right, but this um, um, moonshot thinking in the 21st century, there are a lot of examples from the previous century, the good old Bell Laboratories, the DARPA efforts, the research labs that are happening at IBM, at uh, Microsoft, all these efforts. 
Um, but I think we have a number of ingredients now in terms of entrepreneurship, being able to mix different skills, focus on the problem first, that will give us a higher chance of succeeding than the ones before. And certainly, human, human intelligence will be key to that, but also machine intelligence, and intelligence that will come with an AI ethical world like the one I described before. And with that said, thank you so much. And um, <laughs> thank you for Pablo for a very inspirational talk. So I guess we have uh, time for uh, some questions. So if you have a seat, you can come over. Hi, uh, Rudy, Rudy Parker. Hi, uh, thanks, Dr. Rodriguez. I, I found it uh, really fascinating and quite inspiring. Um, uh, and I actually noticed MIT and Northeastern. I got, I got my MBA over in, in, in the States. And uh, we had a great professor from M MIT talking about um, building cross-functional, high-performing teams. And just some of the... Uh, some of the challenges you talked about, the next billion and, and uh, the healthcare challenges. I mean, obviously building a, a really exceptional team is, is crucial for these moonshots. So I was really interested how you build these teams with you, you know, some of the individuals you mentioned. Right, so... Um I guess what I've realized in creating these organizations, and I've seen various organizations in my life, they're driven by different things. Um, when I was a scientist, they were driven by the mere, uh, mere passion of advancing the state of the art. And why not recognition? Um, as an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs, um, especially in the Valley, they're driven by financial reward. Being able to sell your company uh, to one of the big uh, players and uh, being able to do this repeatedly. Um, in corporations, you're trying to, um, uh, you're incentivized and you're motivated by working with other engineers, by working with the business units, understanding what is their day-to-day -day business, and you feel good about helping them. Their eyes shine when you come to them and you say, yeah, I know you have a pain, I know your wireless network is, doesn't have enough capacity, and I think I can help you with this technology. At Alpha, I'm seeing that people are at a different stage in their journey. Um, there are people that are certainly motivated by a purpose. And um, they've done a number of things in their life. They probably already had a fair share of uh, scientific contribution. They put enough lines of code, of code in the different computers and uh, programs and so forth. And now they're trying to find more deeper meaning and purpose. And to me, that has been very inspirational because I've seen it even in, young gen in younger generations where the level of consciousness is increasing, where they come to you and they say, I'm coming here because I want to focus on solving the problem. I want to focus on doing good. And eventually, we may do well. But what inspires them, and I see that across uh, all disciplines, whether they are 
policymakers, whether they're people that work in partnerships, whether they're people that are doing business, whether they're engineers or scientists, is that deeper rooted purpose on doing the right thing. And um, they focus on global struggles. They try to understand why is there a global struggle. They make themselves big questions. And then they have the big satisfaction that we live in this world where all this technology is coming to us and we need to put it to right use. And I've been on the other side of the pond many times, where you focus on the technology, you make the scientific advancement, you really make the prototype, you, you, uh, you made such a big progress, and then you have a big hammer, but you have no nail to hit. And then you, you keep hitting different nails, but it's not the right nail. It may be past your lifetime, the nail that you're going to hit. There is nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's a lot harder to have impact. So this people that people like Oliver, the captain for health, is bringing, um, the pa I think is the passion for focusing on that problem first, on falling in love with that problem, falling in love with that social challenge. And then uh, it is the purpose that drives them. I lost track, so maybe you in the back, and then I'll keep track of two of you. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Um, I'm called Rachel Rosen, and I work in health policy. So my question is going to be around kind of the policy and regulatory framework that much of um, the moonshots that you're talking about will exist in. I think in this country, particularly in healthcare in a highly regulated NHS system, we see that there are lots of great advances we seem to fall down every time that we can't really implement them on the ground because policymakers and regulators just can't keep up and they can't predict what's coming down the line. So is there a role for a company like Alpha to really kind of support the ethical and regulatory policymaking framework to make sure that we can at least kind of grab onto the, um, the back of your tailcoat when you're coming up with great ideas and not scrabbling around to try and make sure that we can implement things relatively quickly when they come to market. So I encourage you to talk to Oliver at the end of the talk because I'm sure he's going to be able to um, answer a lot more eloquently because this is what he does day to day on the health space. Um, but I'd say that um, um, there, are, there are two parts to policy and health. I think one of them is um, the health system is so important, has worked so well for so many years, has very good policies in place to protect consumers, to uh, um, bring the right medicine at the right time, with the right doses, at the right patient. Um, and that's all great. It gives you a lot of trust. It gives you uh, a good basis. The challenge is that sometimes it doesn't move fast enough. It doesn't move as fast as society needs or demands. On the other side, you can go and work directly with um, consumers. Um, you can hear, listen to their needs. You can try to come out to them with solutions, but you may not run into the risk of not doing the right thing um, or not doing anything at all. And rather than trying to help them into their health journey, uh, become more of a lifestyle type of solution. And I think in the middle there, there is um, some sweet spot that we're trying to explore. Um, I won't tell you it's easy. 
Um, I think what we try to do is we try to start from the consumer. Uh, here at LSE, we work with Professor Dolan, working on happiness and um, trying to understand how that happiness and the underpinning problems can be better driven forward and then trying to be in the best in class of the health ecosystem to make that happen when we need where we need it. Um, and I do believe we have a, higher, a better chance of doing that at Alpha as a separate organization as opposed to within the mother company at Telefonica because we're able to explore boundaries and um, across different entities in which that probably we couldn't before. All right, so let's have one or two questions to make it in time. So let me go this way, uh, gentlemen. Uh, yes. Just a very quick question. Uh, James Sherrod, on Swap DCC. It's a very significant. Sorry. Um, it's, my name is James Shirt from Smart DCC. I'm very interested in learning more about uh, Telefonica and the relationship that it's got with you and going forward spin-outs and how you as an organization intend to go up that scale of true development into those areas of sustainability that you were talking about. And I'd also like to just ask you about how you came about the ranking um, of the various aspects, i.e. energy, water, and so on, um, and how you can justify that. Thank okay. you very much. So uh, the, the last one is it's, it's a United Nations ranking. I think it's a, it's a public information. Uh, pardon? Do you agree? Do I agree? I don't know if I have to agree or disagree because I didn't do the research. That's what the, the research says. Uh, I'll have to do the research myself to be able to agree or disagree. Uh, I, I do see from our early stage research in going into these communities that uh, communities in these areas are spending a lot of effort into trying to get access to very poor energy, expensive and dirty energy, coal, diesel, um, diesel fuel. They're spending a significant amount of their income into lighting, and, um, and they want more of it, in particular for their kids' education. That has been uh, part of our early indications, is that parents, they want their kids to study at night, and if they only have one candle, they can only have one kids study at night for a few hours, and it's expensive, kerosene. So I don't know if it is the exact order, but it, it starts to... Uh, we're seeing some correlations that this seems to be a very important thing. The same thing for charging mobile phones. Uh, they walk uh, tens of kilometers to the nearest city to be able to charge their um, devices. So then they can do trading or they can understand how the, uh, the weather will be to, uh, to do better uh, crops uh, uh, development, etc. So... That's uh, the second side of the, uh, the talk. The first one uh, of, the, of the question is, the first one is our relationship with Telefonica. Well, um, it, the relation is, is simple. We are fully owned by Telefonica. So we are a subsidiary of Telefonica. Um, we, are, we report into a board where the CEO of Telefonica sits and a number of top executives. Um, 
they have um, three basic functions. One is appoint or fire me, uh, the CEO. Uh, the second one is approve new moonshots. And the third one is maintain the stability of the program over the years. Now, what I do believe is that um, the, whatever these projects, be it health, be it energy, or the ones that we will start over the coming years, become to a certain stage of maturity, number of things could happen. They could be spun inside uh, Telefonica, and Telefonica could take them into commercialization and scaling, or we could spin them out, and uh, through partnerships and joint ventures, we could probably take them uh, to the next level. Um, but as I said, we try to find problems and challenges. We, uh, we can use the mother company to bring something into the equation that others are not bringing and that can give us a higher chance of succeeding. If that is not the case, then we will uh, partner and spin out these organizations to be able to scale them. Yeah, I guess with this I propose we finish just to keep it within time. So those questions we couldn't accommodate, just please feel free to ask offline. So anyway, thanks again for, to Paolo.